Hello and welcome to the second episode of Bear Fruits, a monthly-ish podcast and conversation about queer books and literature. I'm Georgie. And I'm Rosie. And we are your hosts. Thank you for joining us. It's May and we are ready for summer, even if the weather isn't and we're sitting in Georgie's apartment with Biscuit, who's supposed to be napping in the background, but she's not quite napping. She's looking frisky. Yeah, I'm nervous. Um, (laughs) And... Also, ostentatiously, we're going out for a fancy celebratory meal this evening to celebrate us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I'm already thinking about the huge cocktail that I'm going to drink later, which is spurring me on. Anyway, how are you doing today, Georgie? I'm feeling OK. I've been in a bit of a mood lately. <laughs> I think that's mostly caused by me feeling restless. I want to have reckless irresponsible fun but the occasion has not presented itself or maybe I haven't presented myself to the occasion um anyway I'm excited for my gin and tonic later how are you um I'm doing okay my concentration has been really terrible the Mm. last few months also maybe just since the pandemic started so two years I hear you um but this week it temporarily returned and I feel like I was able to read and think. And so that was really nice. And I'm hoping it continues. I'm happy for you. Thanks. This episode, we are talking about Honey Mine Collected Stories by Camille Roy, which came out with Nightboat Books in 2021. I think Nightboat is my favourite publisher at the moment. There are so many good books coming out from them. And I wish I could afford their whole catalogue. Also, this isn't the last book we're going to cover by them in our podcast, right? We've already got no. one lined up. Exactly. Um, Big fans. Yeah, we are big fans. Maybe they can sponsor us. Yeah, or send (laughs) us free books. Also, welcome. (laughs) Otherwise, we should mention that we have a content warning for this episode as we will be discussing sexual assault a bit later. Um, But we'll make sure to mention it again right before we start talking about it so listeners can switch off. And we'll also write in the show notes the exact minute, second that it starts and stops so that yeah you can skip it so to give a brief introduction camille roy is a san francisco based writer who's known mainly for her part in the new narrative movement and the first iteration of this movement operated mainly from the san francisco bay area between 1977 and 1997 um but we'll come back to that a bit later because we've got some more to say about it and roy has written Many things, plays, poetry and prose. She's founded the online journal Narrativity and co-edited the Dear World magazine with Nayland Blake, who I think was also part of the new narrative movement. And she spent decades writing and pushing the boundaries of writing for and about queer women. Honeymine collects new and previously unpublished fiction, essays, cultural critique and poems, as well as some hard to get hold of early texts. Roy has said that it appears as if it's a memoir or derived from personal experience, but it isn't, which is nice and clear. It's not a memoir. It's a very rich exploration of coming of age as a working class lesbian and looking for a culture to kind of slip into. But it's also a book very much about writing and Roy reflects on the complex experience of trying to capture this kind of life at various points in the book. Yeah, it's probably important to mention that Roy describes Honeymine as works of fiction or most of it, which I don't think I immediately picked up on because the protagonist is also named Camille and it develops chronologically as a memoir might. And it also draws heavily on Roy's lived experiences and follows the same trajectory as she. 
moving from Chicago to San Francisco in her early 20s. Before we get into it, I want to give a quick shout out to the beautiful cover, which features a very well-chosen artwork by the queer artist Nicole Eisenman called Bambi Gregor. It's an ink, it's basically an ink drawing of the Disney character Bambi standing in a forest clearing surrounded by other creatures and it's stylistically akin to the Bambi in the Disney film except that this Bambi has sprouted eight legs, wings and antennae. I think it's easy to assume this metamorphosis could be symbolic of some kind of awakening or transition which are themes explored by Roy in the book. Also because new narrative writers often borrow inappropriate references from popular culture like film and literature, which is exactly what Eisenman has done here with Bambi. Yeah, but what's the transition? It's like cute baby deer straightness turning into a mutant queer (laughs) deer. (laughs) It's like queerness is a monster. Maybe this is too literal. It's also just a great drawing. But I would like to point out that this Bambi has a very seductive look on its face. Mm. Don't you think? Yeah, that's how I read it. He definitely looks coy. Coy, yeah. yeah. But also not a monster. I think it's growth, evolution. Bambi has wings. Mm. I think that's kind of... Bambi will fly. Bambi will fly. Anyway. Um, But there's also this element of fantasy, which I find interesting, because the writing in Honeymine has a glittering spectral quality to it, which feels like fantasy. And the fiction also kind of shimmers with these surreal encounters and there's definitely a pronounced focus on sex and pleasure and solidarity and community which feels really intentional against the fraught political cultural landscape of the time in which it was set but maybe we'll talk about this later yeah but yeah it's a good observation i think that whilst the writing is very snappy and forthright and i would say realist Mm. often Mm -hmm. Um, there's so many surreal moments in both the fiction and the more essay or poetry like sections and these really take you out of the chronological narrative and into this kind of more associative emotional life of the protagonist or the writer and these surreal moments are often erotic in some way actually Roy herself has something to say about this have a good quote here silence is one way of negotiating the unacceptable transgressive romantic fantasy is another They're tools for managing the survival of self. The first maintaining it, the second an act of intervention. And I really like this idea of transgressive romantic fantasy as intervention as a way to maintain survival because, well, I relate to it (laughs) very much. And it, it brings such a rich understanding of survival that also has pleasure in the mix. Mm. And I think this is also one of the prerogatives of new narrative as far as I understand it. Um, Mm -hmm. And Roy has said that going to San Francisco and encountering New Narrative taught her how to write and has described New Narrative as a series of specific techniques for representing realities that are outside of the mainstream. I find this kind of interesting because while I can see that having a set of techniques, particularly if you're a young writer, can be empowering in some way, I do find this kind of schematic nature of it at odds a bit with the idea of subjective representation but I would like to know more I didn't really know so much about new narrative I've only read bits and pieces I have not read much new narrative either this is a disclaimer (laughs) disclaimer we don't know what we're talking about (laughs) pretty much to all our listeners um I've read a bit of Dodie Bellamy and a bit of Kathy Acker but I'm definitely no authority um but maybe what she means is that new narrative helped her learn how to represent subjective experience which in itself is unique to each individual. 
Thank you for explaining <laughs> what that means. Of course, that makes total sense. And also just giving space for gay and lesbian working class writers to say, yes, my experience is important and worth bringing, figuring out how to write about. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did some reading up about it. And a new narrative is characterized as writing that investigates the unrepresentable. So a system of writing optimally responsive to cultural and political change. Maybe it's useful to say that I got all my info from the introduction of Writers Who Love Too Much, which is an anthology of new narrative writing that was also published by Nightboat in 2017. And the intro is written by Dodie Bellamy and Kevin Killian. And usually I skip introductions because... I just want to get straight to it, you know. But this was such a pleasure to read. And I really feel like having some context for Roy's writing made me enjoy it even more. So they take the kind of 20 years that they sketch out as the first movement of new narrative and talk about its inception, which was led by Bruce Boone and Robert Gluck in and around the small press traffic bookshop, where they held free writing workshops, subsidised amazingly by the California Arts Council, No More. And this movement was populated, at least at first, by a lot of gay male writers. And there were three workshops initially, which was one for everyone, so anyone could attend. One for gay men and one for seniors. Oh. Amazing. That's how society is divided. Yes. Everyone, gay men, seniors. And New Narrative became a relatively well-established movement by the late 1980s and a community that was obviously violently disrupted by the onset of the AIDS crisis. Yeah. And Roy has said that in Honeymind, she was making the context for the work at the same time she was making the work itself, which I feel is very much true for New Narrative as well. It was kind of a move that was politically necessary. And in the introduction, they say that it was writing prompted very much by, quote, community. It would be unafraid of experiment, unafraid of kitsch, unafraid of sex and gossip and political debate. Novice writers have been lectured since forever to show, don't tell. But one thing New Narrative did was tell and tell and tell without the cheap obscurantism of showing. And I love this idea of showing as obscurantism. And Roy's writing, particularly one of her essays that I think you want to talk about, Georgie, uses this approach in such a thrilling way. I'm such a geek. It's thrilling. It's deeply thrilling, but it is to me. It is a really good chapter, um... It's called Undergrid, an obscure manifesto. It's easily my favourite essay in the book. I think we could do a whole podcast episode on it. Yeah. But also as a preface to what I'm about to say, I've really slimmed down. Like I'm really only touching the surface in what I'm about to say because there's so many layers to this essay. So I'm just pulling out some stuff. But um, it's in this essay that Roy gives some insight into why the new narrative tradition is so appealing to her as a writer. She has this way of talking about language as an artifact, as a substance with its own residue, which resonates so deeply with me and touches on a lot of stuff about the texture of language that I've been longing to find more of in literature. So, as I understand it, a key descriptor of new narrative writing is that it strives to render personal subjective experience as authentically as possible through text. I think that's one reason why in new narrative, narrative itself is difficult to follow, because life in real time doesn't fit neatly into a storytelling arc. Um, question mark (laughs) yeah I agree anyway at the end of the chapter Roy takes this quote from Robert Gluck and Bruce Boone and they say what kind of representation least deforms its subject can language be aware of itself as object as system as commodity as abstraction yet take part in the forces that generate the present 
where in writing does engagement become authentic? I want to stick with the first question for now. What kind of representation least deforms its subject? And Roy states that new narrative recognises that language and writing as a form of representation deforms its subject. However, it understands and embraces the idea that obscurity is central to all social relations. So for representation in writing to be authentic, then obscurity must manifest in language. Yeah, maybe you could say more about what you mean by or what she means by obscurity mm. here. Or maybe a better question is why obscurity is necessary and what function it has. Because we just mentioned the idea of the cheap obscurantism of showing. So maybe it's useful to distinguish mm. from that. Yeah. Or like it would be helpful. Because I feel like what you're talking about now is a kind of generative obscurantism, one that makes space rather than takes it up if that makes sense. Yeah, so Roy defines an obscure text as being difficult or legible to some readers, perhaps because it's packed with cultural codes or slang from subcultures and communities, perhaps because it contains confusing erotic elements or a bit of cultist or something. But for readers of its intended audience, these kinds of texts are deeply relational. They are loaded with meaning and recognition. Um, she traces a sort of genealogy of lyric obscurity through the work Infidel Poetics by Daniel Tiffany, which I really want to read and I've never even heard of, um, who notes that lyric obscurity emerges from subcultures and underground communities through poetry, slang, song, etc., um, who are somehow displaced, alienated or rejected from mainstream society. So as a consequence, lyric obscurity has a history of dissidence and revolt. And while these lyrical objects are perhaps visible or physically accessible, they are kind of hiding in plain sight. They cannot be decoded and are essentially dismissed by the cultural mainstream. So they have really small audiences. This actually calls back to an anecdote in the intro that I mentioned where one publisher gave the reason for not publishing new narrative work because it was only of interest to a small segment of Californian homosexuals. Mm. They don't deserve it. No, but this is exactly why it appeals to Roy because it speaks to the obscurity of her personhood. Her identity and the underground spaces she occupied in her youth rendered her, or at least she, how she experienced it, rendered her more or less invisible to the cultural mainstream. But maybe to take it back to language, she says, while a text may be difficult, relation does not fall away due to difficulty. And then obscurity is a social substance. So it's as though the text's obscurity functions as a sort of connective tissue linking it to others in this vast secret network. This really reminds me of an essay by Lydia Davis on fragmentation in writing. And she uses this analogy of a ruin to show how something that may seem complete or whole to one is actually only a fragment of the whole or vice versa to another. And I find this conception of a piece of writing having all these hidden chambers that some can access while others cannot, so incredibly mind-blowing, even though it's so incredibly obvious. <laughs> like, of course, even within myself, I'm going to interpret something I read differently to how I might have read it five years ago as my worldview expands. Yeah, totally. This makes me think of close reading and how this is one of the ways you can access some of these hidden chambers. Or to me, it becomes so obvious when we read it for the podcast rather than just reading it for pure mm -hmm. pleasure is that you find so much that you wouldn't have noticed before. You have to be very present while reading this collection, and I think quite a lot of new narrative writing in general. Um, to be honest, in the past, I've been really put off by writing by Kathy Acker, who is shock, shock horror. 
Um, she also is a new... Is she a new narrative writer? Yeah. I don't know if she was, like, part of the movement. Well, no, she's actually in the anthology. So I guess in some way she was. But not, like, in these sort of original workshops yeah. in Bay Area. Couldn't, couldn't tell Okay. Her. Either way, I've always been kind of... I don't know, I just always found it a bit pretentious and annoying. But after reading this... Don't whisper, Georgie. Shout your opinion. Kathy... No, I won't. But no, after reading this collection and sort of finding out a bit more about what new narrative is about i think i'm ready to give it another shot anyway on roy's struggle to write about coming out she says a taboo is a place where language deteriorates and then a bit later the powerful attraction of taboo is anti-linguistic it stops meaning at the boundary privacy and insanity have this in common shared meaning drops away and then a bit later the boundary i'm referring to is not individual but communal the ability of a community to seal itself is is mysterious and powerful even if temporary i find this first sentence where she's talking about a taboo is a place where language deteriorates so powerful and true there are instances when language completely fails us but new narrative is committed to the project of representing complicated non-linear or deeply internal and ungraspable aspects of one's life. I mean, the sentence is very packed with meaning, and I have some questions. Mm-hmm. Because who does language deteriorate for? Everyone? Or maybe what I'm getting at is that the way that language deteriorates or how this deterioration is felt is surely different for those who inhabit the taboo and those who don't, mm. or perhaps the role of taboo or like the taboo kind of looms large within all of us and we all inhabit it at points which i guess brings us back to the communality of the boundary is am i does that make sense do you mean the communality like within the boundary that you have or outside the boundary i guess the boundary itself like everyone meets the boundary right oh i see yeah because i interpreted it as the communality from within the boundary within the like secret yeah space that's where community or communality occurs yeah so then language deteriorates for those who try to express this community like that's i feel like that's specifically yeah that taboo that's specifically what she's doing throughout this book is like trying to find a way or a Mm -hmm. place where language doesn't doesn't deteriorate enough to express something still or to capture part of that but then also for those who do inhabit the taboo it might be more of a somatic bodily understanding even if in that moment you can't make sense of it or you can't get perspective so even if language deteriorates for the subject there's still there's still like sense being made through like a more somatic connection Mm -hmm. with the language and then she's talking about how well she's actually not really talking about writing here she's talking about language yeah which is different yeah the powerful but then also she says the powerful attraction of taboo is anti-linguistic so it's inherently non-verbal not not non-verbal but non uh, it can't be expressed in words or or it's it's difficult to which is why i feel like maybe it's a more of a somatic thing because here actually yeah i've got another quote it says recognition imposes a coercive order whereas obscurity is packed with relation, communal, sexual, political. Obscurity marks an interstice where social relations slip from public to private, 
and understanding becomes tacit and tactile. It's a space of social darkness which functions opposite to a black hole. It throws out slang, ideas, reconfigured relations, new possibilities for dissent and disorder. So understanding becomes tacit. So it is nonverbal. Okay. The first part of this quote makes me think of something that I think Paul Preciado said about gender in Let the Monster Speak. He says that gender is given to you by the people around you. So it's how people see you and how what they call you that produces it. So for that to be possible, it has to come out of the shadows and into the light and made public, which obviously can be really dangerous. But your your gender then hinges on the recognition of those who don't necessarily share the same understanding or relational ties. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So, moving on to our next big topic of the day, we're going to talk about lesbianism, Mm. my favourite. So, firstly, (laughs) what a joy it was to read such complex, alive and sexy writing on being a lesbian. I feel like I, when, I feel like when I haven't read anything about being a lesbian for a while, and then I encounter something like this, the force of what I've been missing really hits me and it feels mm. both very nourishing and sad at the same time. Um, I'm not really sure what the sadness is about. Maybe it's just that feeling that all great writing gives you, which is that something you felt but haven't been able to articulate or even recognised in yourself is suddenly right in front of you. Identification, yeah. Yeah, it's very sustaining and confronting and I want more of it. Now, it's hard to know where to start because there are so many aspects of lesbianism to get through. (laughs) Why don't we start with the kind of coming of age theme that runs through the book? I didn't really notice until I read an interview with the editors that it is structured chronologically, which I think you mentioned before. So that all the protagonists who are all women, all lesbians, um, and if they're not fictional, they're written in first person from the author's perspective. So it's just Camille Roy writing. Mm -hmm. They all get older as the book goes on. So... Yeah, they start up as young teenagers living in Chicago, exploring and navigating their sexuality. And by the end, they're grown up lesbians living in San Francisco, like Camille Roy herself. And she has this way of crystallizing the very tender yearning of teenagers and their Mm. painful and very vulnerable energy. Um, And the body is really brought into this struggle in all its like tenacity and vigor and its unknowing and knowingness or like search for knowing I suppose. Yeah, and the coming out narrative has this ongoingness to it, which is sustained throughout the collection, even later on, actually, like Mm -hmm. in the later, even as an adult. Yeah, that's true. As though she's anticipating some perpetual state of arrival, which I feel really resonates with the feeling of coming out. Um, Yeah, you're like, I did it once, I should feel great now, but why don't I? Um, There's this moment in this chapter, Sex Life, where Anita, who Camille has been having sex with while her husband is away, asks are you a dyke yet as if there's like a number of times they need to fuck to make it official or something (laughs) and also because Camille's quite young she just sort of mumbles something incoherently back yeah well you know it takes a while to take it on as your own maybe I can just read a section from the first story of the book so you get a sense of the writing and the tone is it all point of view pleasure I mean the surprise in the dark I suppose it is different for everyone 
To Camille, it felt empty and fresh because she was. She left words out. It wasn't only that she was new at it, sex. It was the business of settling into the body, the one which had arrived with its equipment of muscles and tits and hair about six years earlier. It felt helpless and vivid, but also sensational. A big place, accented with childish gestures. A stadium. Was it possible that her body felt like a stadium? And so, yeah, the body's surfaces become huge somehow in these stories. And with them, pleasure also becomes infinite and unpredictable, or at least they have this possibility temporarily. And one aspect that kind of characterises Roy's approach approach to lesbianism or queerness is its necessary secretiveness. And we're really shown in no uncertain terms society's violent response to non-normative desire alongside some kind of rare and tender moments of characters who are in on it or like the older lesbians who spot Camille and give her room to explore her sexuality without saying that that's what they're doing. So this secretiveness is born of necessity. It's like a kind of code, but that doesn't mean that it isn't hot because it really is. And in some moments, the anticipation is built so excruciatingly, I could hardly bear it. Um, So I'm going to read quite a long section from a story called The Faggot because I want you to get the full sense of this tension and how delicious it is. Take it away. Isabel sat on the mattress and traced the outline of the stain with her finger. What do you think this is? It looks like a body shadow. Someone died here or was an invalid, maybe an insane aunt. Look at my arm, she said. I sat down next to her. I could smell the sweat under her armpits and a slight sweetness coming off her hair. Hair rinse, probably. I rubbed the spot she had pointed to gently with my thumb. It looked like it might hurt. A rash of tiny bumps had spread across her skin. She pulled at the hem of her dress where there was another red patch. Look, there's another one. You're getting rashes, I said, stating the obvious. I wanted to put off doing anything, just for a moment. It's that feeling of being about to tremble under a coat of fresh paint. I leaned over and pressed my palms into my eyes, flooding myself with reds and oranges. Eyelids are a sheet of bloody laundry. Inside, something to count on. When I raised my head again, she said, You scratch it. So I ran my fingers around the perimeter of the red mark on her thigh. Then I dug in with my fingernail. What does it feel like? A hot spot. Happens to me. Don't worry about it. She was looking down at it, frowning. Do you want to leave? No. We sat for a while next to one another on top of that disintegrating stain. She said she liked the way it smelled up there, like dry roasted dust. She laughed and I looked at her and it seemed that her face had gone soft or had just gone somewhere, leaving leaving behind two eyes and a pouch of skin. I tried kissing it. Her breath deepened, a sigh emptied out. I climbed on her hips, up on her white panties and I sat there for a moment looking. It was so unfamiliar, a girl rolling between my legs with the little blast-offs in my blood. She gripped the mattress with both hands, arched her back, and it hit me. I could be anyone. What a blast, what a fucking relief. Curious all of a sudden, I reached my hand down along my back and my ass, and I reached for what was there. Whatever it was, under the girlish white underwear, the fine black hairs, her impossible sour and wet surfaces... We were up there a while, years possibly. <coughs> so you get the, I'm all hot and bothered now. <laughs> you get the idea. The build up. And yeah, 
We love a good build-up. Thank you for that. You're welcome. (laughs) Nice long reading. (laughs) Um, It's nice that when historicising this period, there's all the sex and pleasure and joy recorded without the grief and shame and loss that was attached to queerness at this time. Still often is, I guess. But like, even though, obviously those more sort of negative aspects make an appearance in the novel Roy creates space for both yeah definitely and I'm gonna swerve a bit here how do you feel about the word dyke because I love it and feel it is underused or maybe I just don't know anyone who uses it for some reason I feel like I'm not allowed to use this word about myself and then I realize that this unknown reason is called imposter syndrome and I can call myself whatever I like um, but perhaps I would only like it if a few select people called me this, including you. So go for it. I'd be very happy to call you a dyke, Rosie. Um, yeah, I love how Camille identifies with the word and like how she feels this deep internal satisfaction in using it for herself, despite it being a monster word, which is how she puts it. Yeah, maybe it's actually good to say quickly that we just say Camille so much, but that's because multiple characters are called Camille and also the writer's called Camille. It's just like... That's true. It's like different iterations of the same yeah. person almost. So if anyone was confused by that, that's what's happening. Should I read that quote? Yeah. So there's this quote about the power of the word dyke. <laughs> that was just another mystery and I didn't question it. I felt unbearably agile, lucky and bitter. But all that was the past. In the future, I was going to call Isabel. What would I say? The word dyke, of course. Dyke, dyke, dyke. Perhaps I'd mention the hot and friendly feeling that was spiking in my chest. It was about weaponry. As a fellow dyke, Rosie, <laughs> what do you think about the point she makes in the afterword um, about the public speculation over her partner's gender identity being an act of lesbian erasure? To give some context, the afterword um, is sort of a love letter to um, Roy's partner who died in 2017, who the book is also dedicated to. Um, and in that, she writes about how the public has speculated about Angie's gender identity. Obviously, what strikes me as weird about this is that it's really nobody's business to probe into someone else's gender identity if they haven't publicly addressed it, or even if they had. It's not up for debate. But especially seeing as her partner is literally dead. But though I think Roy's relationship to gender is in general quite expansive... There were a few moments throughout the collection where I read her attachment to her lesbian identity is a bit rooted in gender essentialism. Yeah. I know that generation fought hard for the rights and all, but... <laughs> Just throw that in there. I know, but... It's, uh, yeah. No, it's hard. I think I'm kind of reluctant to speculate because it is, as you said, no one's business. Even aside from the speculation of Angie's gender identity oh, yeah. in general, like the sort of attachment she feels... Yeah, I just jump the gun when I hear lesbian erasure because usually that's transphobic. Transphobic yeah. kind of. Um, well, it's just mobilized as transphobic. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I totally get why your hackles would be raised by this. I'm just a reactive millennial. <laughs> Shoot me, I'm a reactive millennial. Um, yeah, it's hard because I think that whilst I can understand that in this specific, this very specific context, having people be like, Oh, Mm. but don't you think that blah, 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 you'd be like, please leave me alone to my life. For sure. And, you know, but she actually says something really nice at the end about this, this kind of 
conflict or I don't really know what the right word is tension my intent is to create silence around myself on these matters not discourse I think this creates a nourishing emptiness which is part of how I want to live now meanwhile there is the language of the book which is the meeting place of the living and the dead it is open for business I hope that it can be entered by anyone and feasted upon like the washed up carcass of a whale which I think is well said although the dead animal carcass as like a place a meeting place is kind of interesting um okay so I'm gonna move on from this because I want to talk about the effect that this kind of writing by which I also kind of mean new narrative more generally produces in its reader particularly when Roy writes about pleasure but also when she writes about heightened negative emotion so in one text, when she's talking about porn, she writes, and this is just kind of to give a kind of context for what I'm going to say afterwards, the audience becomes an unwitting collaborator in its own disintegration, in the interest of pleasure or just feeling, period. And oh, also maybe it's nice to just say that this is in the, the section called experimentalism, in case people want to find it. Mm-hmm. And this feeling of disintegration is precisely what I think that Roy is so good at producing or making the reader produce for themselves, not only through the way that the texts are written and the language that she uses, but also how they're structured. So she will sometimes take you out of the heat of the narrative to reflect on the experience before returning to it, which has the kind of opposite effect that you think it would have in that you can't you then can't move through the narrative without it being broken up or fragmented in some way. And this requires you to follow the feeling of the protagonist and to trust perhaps that, that they will tell the story. You just have to follow this process. Mm. Um, yeah. As a reader, you really have to just go with it and let the text carry you through because if you step off the train at any moment, you step out of the moment and all of the step off the train. Sorry you know get off the bandwagon yeah don't get off the bandwagon if you get off the bandwagon then you step out of the moment and all of the like connective tissues fall away like you can't yeah step back in again that's not a very interesting point but no it's good it's good so yeah maybe i'm just gonna say that this is the part where we're going to talk about sexual assault so if you want to skip that then do so now um but I think this takes us back to the idea of attraction, the attraction of taboo being anti-linguistic and she really treats it as such because there's a kind of non-linear rhythm that connects the erotic scenes with a scene where a character experiences a sexual assault. So I'm going to read this section now. I never got to the river to swim with Shane and Willa. They left before me and I was supposed to hitch a ride and get there later. I did climb into a tan Buick where I sagged into the bucket seat and closed my eyes. I was meditating. I did that for a long time and it was a good thing to tumble into the dead space with ghosts. When I opened my eyes, I saw I'd gotten a ride with a demon. It's all in the past, which means it's here now and also in the future. That's why stories don't work. There's no real sequence. It's always breathing and dying and spitting resemblances up. Try it. Grab one. It'll squirm like jellyfish and carry a mean sting. It'll make your hands sticky. And if you're lucky, it won't be blood. I'm talking about the past. Do you carry life insurance? That's what the demon asked me. I told him I was only 15 and life insurance wasn't a big issue yet. 
I sell it, I know. Everyone should carry life insurance. Yep, he said. He kept saying that. His cock looked like a big frog. Yep, yep. I want to fuck you. I can spot the gruesome a mile away and normally I react, but this stuff just floated into my empty head. Whatever was in there to begin with, he had completely cleared out. You got in the wrong car this time, kid. Hey, I said carefully, and then I added a tinge. Annoyance. This won't work because I'm a dyke. That's a fucking big word, dyke. I hadn't known that. I discovered it that day. A swerve and a shove, and then I was getting to my feet, my hands and knees all scraped up. I carried a switchblade for years after that. It was a kind of marriage. On that day, my pockets were empty. I turned and watched the Buick pull away. It had a big trunk. It wouldn't have been a tight fit. Writing a story is a little like dragging a tree out of a dark wood and then wrapping it with strings of starry lights. And so, yeah, I really love the way that she talks about the protagonist's experience of time or the way she renders this in the text because she she kind of brings this in or like there's a moment of pause before she describes the assault. And maybe it seems strange that I'm thinking about the sex scenes and this scene in parallel. But it made me think of this quote from theorist Anne Svekovic's book, um, Trauma, Sexuality and Lesbian Public Cultures, which was published in 2003. And she writes, thinking about trauma from the same depathologizing perspective that has animated queer understandings of sexuality opens up possibilities for extending trauma, for understanding traumatic feelings, not as a medical problem in search of a cure, but as felt experiences that can be mobilised in a range of directions, including the construction of cultures and publics. And I think what interests me here is the link that I can see between the boundary Roy outlines, this stopping at the boundary, and the inability she sees in herself as being able to represent her coming out and the way that she mobilises it in language. So how it spreads and becomes part of queer culture and how a holding environment is created where these tensions and contradictions can exist. It's kind of an acknowledgement as well as an exploration. I'm also just thinking about how trauma is represented both by trauma studies in general and the therapeutic and scientific communities as challenging the limits of language and as rupturing meaning altogether perhaps but you know it has to be written of and for me this really resonates with the way that Roy allows this experience the experience of the protagonist to be fleshed out as it inhabits the body um she allows the reader a kind of brief but incisive dive into the time shattering and kind of gnawing effects of sexual assault but she also calls up the word dyke as a talisman and this kind of allows the protagonist to luxuriate in her burgeoning sexuality in the rest of the text and it's still you know this this sexuality is still the predominant space of investigation but it rubs up against um this other experience and their narrative proximity allows the kind of terror and painful rupture of safety to also exist with the joy and the terror of lesbian sexual exploration <laughs> that's my two cents for you today Georgie thank you very much um I'm gonna change <laughs> change the subject harsh no I just don't have anything to add to that that's a very good analysis thanks that you've made I've got a lot to say anybody wants to hear more just yeah ahead to Rosie I'm gonna change the subject a little bit or at least shift the focus 
um, because in that passage, there's this really nice quote. It goes, writing a story is like dragging a tree out of a dark forest and then wrapping it with strings of starry lights. This is just a sentiment that returns throughout the collection. Um, Roy is really preoccupied with the responsibility that comes with actually writing about memory or telling a story. And she's usually intervening midway through the narrative. And in doing so, she's reminding the reader that she's always there as a figment of her past, but also here in the present, sort of consciously deliberating on how to bring it all together and flesh it out in narrative. I really like the, the way she characterises the material quality of writing as a corpse. She treats writing about your memories as a kind of death that takes place. And she also talks a lot about ghosts. They kind of figure quite a lot throughout the throughout the collection. Yeah, which I hadn't noticed until you mentioned it. They're everywhere. They really are, but I don't understand. I think because they take, they, I feel like they symbolise different things every single time. So yeah. it's not like a very clear, this is what she's doing with this. With the ghosts. Maybe she doesn't even know she's doing it. Or like, maybe she does, but this is just something that recurs for, for her. I do think it's something to do with memory. Well, and, that would make sense. storytelling. But other than that, I don't know. Yeah. Shall I read a quote? Because there's yeah, it's really yeah, nice. yeah. another quote. It's not as long as your passage. Oh, I'm sorry. I think of chunks of my past as pieces of brain chemistry. It accounts for how alien they feel while still being tender. They have moved entirely out of language into something else. The folds and fishes of this thing I carry around. Luggage between the ears. This story is coming from brain tissue and that makes it alien and intimate even to me. But I'm writing it and that means I'm taking the experience through the fake death which follows artificial life. To me, writing doesn't feel like an act of the imagination. It's more like the sedentary traces of that act, a kind of cleaning up after the fact. That's all right. At least I can accept it. But then I'm stuck with the question of what gets made when words are piled together. This paragraph, for instance, I think it's a dwelling place for a sort of ghost, one who whines, craves visitors, is erotically frustrated. Into this eternal present, which is eternal because it never arrived in the first place, the hapless reader stumbles, turns around in confusion, then crashes through the rear exit. Reading is a kind of crashing through meaning, as the ghost is my witness. Yeah, she also says that nostalgia is the vehicle through which her past survived. Mm. So there's so much, I don't know, I guess I kind of think about this nostalgia that she allows also as a kind of corpse. Also through nostalgia, you relive something that's already dead. It's kind of revived for pleasure but it's always tinged with the sadness of something that's lost or that you can't get back or the absence of something that cannot be relived. Um, it's kind of empty almost. But then that's interesting that I say that because she, this, if I, if you consider nostalgia to be empty, she also uses it as a vehicle through which something survives. So it's, yeah, yeah there's maybe a bit of tension there. But um, what was I going to say? There's also a really great part where she talks about language as a zombie. Sorry, this is a lot of quotes, but it's really... I don't know. She just is a great, great writer. Great it's writer. a shame not to share it. I'm not considering death as an abstract barrier. It's more of a thin curtain drawn over the churning mass of former times, always present, always invisible. As a joke, I once told a student that language was a zombie acting alive, but composed of dead parts. And this is the real Camille Roy speaking. And I think it's so palpable in her writing, the movement of words through time and their shifting iterations. And in a way... I can see her writing as this curtain that covers this churning mass. It's kind of flexible enough to allow this mass of times, as she says, to live and to move whilst it also tries to hold space 
for them. Yeah, I mean, she also talks a lot about how language is like this ancient artifact that Mm. our ancestors touched or rubbed up against as well. Yeah, she says something about how it's like the oldest thing that she uses in her daily life is language. Um, Yeah, and these moments of reflection or acknowledgement of language and the writerly process are so exciting because it's like she's letting us into the working mechanisms of the text and it just enriches it and displays this kind of tension without it dissipating it makes me think again of that um lydia davis quote Mm. about like ruins likening texts or language to ruins because you can really see or like a or like a structure to have like a physical mass yeah if you if you look at it that way and you see how roy's sort of exposing all of the parts i don't know it's just like she's some sort of like architect of language no but she is you're right though and i think it's such a I think it's such a treat to read this because... Quite the technical aspects of it. Yeah, because writing itself can be such an obscure process. Yeah. So, we have reached the end of our coherence today. I think, I think that's exactly <laughs> where we should end. Yeah, waiting for my cocktail. Okay, so we're going to do what we did in the last episode because it's fun. Because we read so many quotes, but now we're just going to do our favourite lines. So mine is from a section that we didn't talk about. I think it's because it's very fragmented and we avoided that because we didn't know how to approach it. But um, yeah, so this is my favourite quote, one of them. When I'm having sex, it's like I'm having a story. I hear things like she spread her legs as her lover's tongue softly ran across her vagina. The third person, we exclaimed. Yeah, that was also one of my faves. Sorry, I'm going to read a depressing one but I just really like it. So here she's just talking about a friend of hers who died. (laughs) We are a barrel of laughs today. Nice and uplifting. Such stories burst from him in language that had so much vividness and energy, it possessed its own uncanny life. When he died, I had to mourn the death of his language as something distinct from his physical death, a separate loss. And she later goes, what does it mean to be close to a person's language? It's a good question. Mm Mm-hmm. A nice place to end, I think. Yeah, because we're no longer making any sense. And we've got TV Corner still to come. Okay, Georgie, this time, would you like to introduce TV Corner? Because you introduced me to this. It's enriched my life. Okay, yeah, it was... I think we're going to surprise some people when we share what we're going to talk about this episode. We're going to talk about Sex, Love and Goop, which is a Netflix series made by none other than Gwyneth Paltrow and her rather controversial wellness brand, Goop. I would say that this is not exactly queer at first glance. You have to dig a bit to get there. You You absolutely have to dig. There are some queer participants, but I'm not going to lie. I love this show and I kind of love Gwyneth Paltrow now. I also, because you recommended this to me and I reluctantly mm-hmm. indulged you, but you I am obsessed. I love Gwyneth Paltrow. I don't know yeah. why. I mean, we kind of talked about this earlier where you described her as radiating what purity. <laughs> oh yeah. White purity. Yeah, Which she does. She does. But somehow, I mean, obviously this is her show, so she makes herself look great of course as great as she yeah she's like sun-kissed gorgeous Gwyneth Paltrow being all like she's kind of goofy 
but also very sincere yeah like she takes herself very seriously which i think can be very endearing i guess but she also not in this series in the first in the first series we're going to talk about the second series oh yeah so there's there's two series there's one that's just i think called goop or goop lab or something yeah and both of the series they're six part series um where in the first one they sort of explore lots of alternative health cares and wellness fads i guess like kind of pseudoscientific yeah from like cold water swimming to specific kinds of like non-surgical non-surgical cosmetic surgery cosmetic surgery is that what you call it non-surgical cosmetic surgery like you're not under anesthetic you're just like stabbed with some needles and then you look young again yeah which is exactly what goop the brand is it's like a wellness brand that has received a lot of backlash in its time because it promoted a lot of like very vaginal eggs vaginal eggs which were what was wrong well with them? they just don't i think they're either oh god we really should have some facts we they're either any. dangerous or they're just like they don't do anything there's also some sort of vagina candle oh that smelled like gwyneth paltrow's vagina yeah, yeah. which i'm i'm honestly i want to know <laughs> Anyway, this one, Sex, Love and Goop, is a six-part series where a bunch of long-term couples from various walks of life come on the show because they want to improve their relationships in the areas of sex, intimacy and desire. Um, And Goop invites a whole host of experts. They're all quite alternative experts. There's like a tantric healer or... Oh my god, we don't even know. There's a whole what bunch of... What are they of... called? There's like one who's like a sex therapist, but like physical. Yeah, and she gives energetic orgasms, right? No, I'm thinking of the other one. Oh, no, no. But basically, I mean, the reason why this show is so surprising is because a b- number of the participants who come on literally have orgasms, real orgasms on the screen. Yeah, which I've never seen before, I think. I don't well, think I, I don't think porn, porn? counts. <laughs> I, I find it kind of moving, to be honest. Like, Oh, I cried at least once. Yeah, there's some very moving moments where these couples are really laying all of their internal insecurities and internal worlds like out. It's really, it's brave. I wouldn't do it. I would, no way. My housemate said to me afterwards, I want to do all of these. What are they even called? Therapies? They're not really therapies. They're like... Workshops. Work. Well... Well, they're all very different. I think we're conflating them. They're all very different. But one, there was one, yeah, energetic orgasms. Georgie, tell us what they are. I can't really remember because <laughs> I watched it months ago. But um, I think so. This this therapist or healer or I, I don't know what her title is. <laughs> I did is. her quiz. Okay. So I can tell you. What's her name? I did her quiz because I wanted to find out what, um, what are they called? Oh, wait, 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 wait. Erotic blueprints. Yeah. Blueprints, that's it. Jaya. Her name is Jaya. And she tells you what erotic blueprint you have so you can be matched better with your partner or you can you know from which perspective to explore your respective sexualities. I think it's the same one. No, it's a different one who gives like quite like hands-on. It's actually illegal in almost all states apart from California. Mm. Type of therapy that's very hands-on. It's like manual. And so through touch, I mean, she basically just gives them orgasms yeah but like guided it's like guided orgasms in that she's like very slowly being like building you up (laughs) oh my god but she's it yeah but she's like yeah but she's 
I don't know. It's I just never seen anything like this before. It's not. It's not like it's not sexual, sexual. at all. No, it's very not erotic to watch. No, it's shot quite respectfully. I mean, also it just looks like she's having a gynecological exam, basically. Yeah, I mean, it's not. It's not a set in like a sexy boudoir. No, no, but. I mean, it was kind of amazing to see someone be, like, taught how to have a not painful orgasm yeah. after, like... There's also that couple with the guy who Yeah, cried. because he had an energetic orgasm. But then I was like, I still don't really understand how you know that that's what happened. It's because it happened because she didn't touch his penis. It was, like, all over his body, I think. Yeah. And he didn't think that that was possible. Ah, uh, yeah. I think that's what it was. I really like the older couple. Yeah, but they hardly get any airtime, and I feel like maybe this is because it wasn't such a successful experiment. Do you think? Yeah. Huh. Like, she didn't seem very into the idea of... Yeah. I guess she struggles with body image. Yeah, so there was a whole section about that. Internalised, yeah. like... Fatphobia. Fatphobia and sort of misogyny, I guess. Yeah. But um, then she did this confronting yourself in a mirror. So did the other lesbian oh, couple, God, actually. Oh, God, yeah. I, I mean... I feel like, do you look at yourself in the mirror every day, naked? No, because I don't have a big mirror. Oh. Maybe if I had one, I would. I you sometimes do. I've got a big mirror. Mm, yeah, I mean, it's not always the nicest thing, thing to do. Yeah. There's some there's some stuff going on <laughs> that makes it quite uncomfortable sometimes. But I don't know if it would work for me just to stand in front of a mirror and like talk about my body. But it's repetitive right so the point is that you stand in front of the mirror every day and you're like i like this part of my body i like this part of my body so it's like sheer willpower yeah. pushes you through that i guess that's the, a bit like the like the gratitude stuff right where you yeah. every single day you say what you're grateful for even if it's tiny and then over time you find it easier to say what you're grateful yeah. for it's also like a therapy thing right it's like mm. you do the thing that makes you anxious even if you don't feel like doing it, because eventually through doing it, you'll become less anxious. Yeah. Does that work? Couldn't tell you. Haven't don't committed know. to that one yet. No. Exposure therapy. <sighs> yeah. But queerness. Is it queer? There's just a lot no. of queer people in it, which is nice. Yeah, but that doesn't... Yeah. I mean, you don't really get to like... It's not like they talk about the kind of sex that they have. That lesbian couple, that one of their main issues was that they didn't really know how to have sex because but they said that and then it seemed like they, they did they did actually i mean i think they just wanted more tools like but they, they didn't really have to, it was more like tools to make themselves feel more comfortable in their bodies yeah which is a valuable tool i think to be honest rosie we fell at the f- second hurdle this is not a queer show but <laughs> we are the second what was the first hurdle well, we we got over the first hurdle. We talked about the L word. Oh, I see. Now we're falling at the second Already hurdle. we're talking about fucking goop by Gwyneth Paltrow. Hey, you love her. And I know that you have many more shows in up your sleeve that you want to talk about. So I'm waiting to be convinced that all of those are queer. Well, I mean, yeah, I will. I will fight my case. Okay, I look forward to it. Okay, anyway, maybe that concludes. <laughs> that concludes. The if you episode. are still with us. I'm impressed. Um, (laughs) And please do us a favour and like, subscribe, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts because that would just be great to extend our reach. Yeah, I guess it will make it easier for other people to find us. Um, Next episode, we are going to be talking about a novel called Last Words from Montmartre. 
by the Taiwanese writer Chu Miao Jin, which is a bit left field because this novel was actually written in the nineties. That's not left field. I mean, everything we've been we've we've well, the two the... books. Yeah, it was written, but it was published last year. Oh yeah, true. But maybe it's due a republishing. Maybe so. Thank you, as ever, to Aidan Wall for our jingle, Dana Casey for the beautiful designs, Charlie Clemos for lending equipment and answering our, like so many phone calls today. Sorry. Um, Biscuit the dog for being our supporting mascot and destroying all of her toys while we were talking. But not barking. But not barking, that's true. That's preferable. Important. You can stream episodes of Bear Fruits on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can follow us on Instagram at bear underscore fruits underscore podcast. And if you want to get in touch, please do. You can email us at bearfruitspodcast at gmail.com or just DM us. We would love to hear from you. So thank you very much. We'll see you next time. Do we? Bye.